we've been looking at God establishing His kingdom through the nation of Israel. We've come to the land and they've established the king, uh, Saul. He loses the kingdom because of his disobedience and his negligence for God's word and just blatant disregard for God himself really is, is what it's coming down to. And God takes the kingdom away from him and anoints David instead. Now, at this point in the story, there are very few people outside of us, the reader, that know that David has been anointed king. Uh, Saul kind of gets an idea. It seems like he has some kind of idea that, that David is the one. Um, but for one reason or another, uh, due to his own paranoia, uh, due to perhaps his understanding that David is taking the kingdom, or maybe a myriad of other reasons, uh, Saul is out to kill David. And we saw last week that Saul, there was this drastic transfer or tr- uh, transition in Saul's uh, life with David from David killing the giant Goliath and saving Israel and Saul being so impressed with this kid that he exempts his family from taxes. He gives to him wealth. He gives to him uh, his own daughter, makes David his son-in-law, does all kinds of other things for David and in fact makes him the chief of his own army to the point that Jonathan, his own son, is taking off his own armor and all of this kind of stuff and giving it to David and saying, I'm following you. And David is leading the army and this David develops quite a reputation for himself. People are saying about David as he's walking through the town, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousand. So David has developed this reputation, and Saul's emotional psyche cannot handle it and seeks instead to put David to death. He learns that Jonathan, his own son, is more loyal to David than he is to his own father. And so Saul then kind of half-heartedly, it seems, tries to kill his own son with a spear. That doesn't work. Jonathan warns David Uh, Saul's daughter warns David. Uh, A multitude of things are happening as far as they're uh, uh, working together to get David into a safe place and spare his life. And so David, we ended last week with David on the run. He's going to have to live as sort of an outlaw from Saul for the rest of his life, it seems like. And so David takes off. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21. We're going to look at, hopefully, if, if all things work according to plan, we're going to get through 21 and 22 tonight. So uh, David, uh, for the first place he goes in 21 is to the land of Nob, which sounds like a fairy tale uh, place, but he goes to Nob, and we're going to see some interesting things happen there. Somebody want to read our text, 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6, there in your verse packet. Truly, women have been kept 
All right. There's a central question that we should be asking ourselves. As David is prepared to be king, he's anointed king. We found out several weeks ago, David is really young when all of this takes place. Probably somewhere in the area of about 13 or so when he's anointed by Samuel the first time. He's, he's very young. And we're not quite sure how much time passes when it passes. Uh, so we're, when we pick up different stories, we're not quite sure how much time has passed since the last one exactly. However, or at least not always... However, it does seem that David is very young, and the question would would then remain, how can a king so young, how can a person so young be made king? And then the the second question that follows right after that is, how is God going to prepare this young man to take over the reins for Saul and to be king over his people Israel? How is he going to do that? Now, there's probably, as we're all probably at least somewhat familiar with David's wandering in the wilderness, you know, uh, running away from Saul, a little bit at least. But there's probably a million things that God is doing by making this happen. We know that God is the one that's orchestrating this, right? I mean, he's anointed David, and then Saul calls him into his kingdom. But then we have to ask, well, why would, why, God, would you call him into your kingdom and then just chase him away with this crazy king that's trying to kill him. What is God's purpose here? And it, it, it will seem like, at least in our story tonight, that perhaps David is, he's young, but he's also probably a bit naive. It's hard to be young and a man after God's own heart and also be fully aware of the ways of the world, right? So, David, it seems, has a little bit of naivete, doesn't quite understand. You remember even last week, David hears these, or we hear of these reports of people saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And Saul throws a spear at David and tries to pin him against the wall twice. And David has to get with Jonathan and go, we need to figure out if your dad's really mad at me or not. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, an older, wiser, more mature person could come along and just go, he, he's mad at you. <laughs> you, just, you just need to take off running. And so it doesn't seem that David has a full awareness of what's going on or a full appreciation in probably his youth, his young age, as to what's going on. And so he ventures into the land of Nob and to this village that's near the Mount of Olives, and he meets this high priest there, Ahimelech, um, who is presiding over the, the tabernacle. And David is hungry, and it's presented to us that he's more or less alone, but he's probably got a few men with him. It seems like Jesus reports that in the, in the New Testament as well, that he's got men with him. And so uh, he's got some men with him. They go up to the, the tabernacle, and he's, he's hungry, and he doesn't have anything. He's on the run from Saul, doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have clothes outside of the ones on his back. He's literally got nothing, and he's starving and so he's like, oh, yeah, I'm here. Uh, Saul, he wanted me to come on, on this journey, and, you know, I'm here. And because Ahimelech's asking the question, what, you're the leader of Saul's army. Ahimelech has zero clue as to what's going on between David and Saul. Word has not reached his ears yet. And David is on the run, and he's like, why is the lo- commander of the, Lord, of the king's army here without weapons, without clothes, without anything? And he's like, well, the, Saul, he sent me on this journey, and I had, to, I had to come in haste. Do you have any bread? Do you have any, you have any, you have any weapons? Um, and so he maybe uh, gilds the lily a little bit, <laughs> massages the, <laughs> the story a little bit to try to get some 
uh, to keep Ahimelech in innocence and keep him out of, out of awareness of what's going on and to actually get some provisions. And uh, now there's some really important parts that are just kind of side parts of this story that we need to pay attention to or at least keep track of, keep in your mind. And that is the, the location of the tabernacle and the central sanctuary where the Lord is. Remember, this is one of the main characters in the story of the Old Testament is the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. Where does it go? Why, why are they here? They're in the land of Nob, and here's some, obviously a tabernacle is set up there in the land of Nob. Where is Nob? What is Nob? That's a good question. We don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you, but there are priests there, and there's the tabernacle set up there, and we know that at one point the central sanctuary for the Lord was in Shiloh. But then you remember what happened in Shiloh, the Philistines took the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, they captured it, and then you remember early on in the book of 1 Samuel, all the tumors started breaking out over the Philistines, and they, they were getting rid of this thing, they were passing it on from city to city, well, I don't want this thing, you take it. And then tumors broke out over there, I don't want this thing, you take it. And they kept, Why are you bringing that cursed object here? So eventually they'd send it all the way back on an ox cart into the land of Israel and uh, get this thing away from us, we would rather have nothing of it. Well, when they got the Ark of the Covenant back, they took the Ark and they put it in some random dude's house in, <laughs> in Kiriath-Jerim, a guy named Abinadab that we don't really hear much from later. Uh, there's a lot of Abinadabs in the Old Testament, but it, it, the Ark remains at his house. You can see that in 1 Samuel 7, 1-2. Um, somebody read that out loud for us, 7, 1-2, and then 6, 1-4. Yeah, 7, 1 to 2, and then the next, the passage right after it. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab, Dab, rather, on a hill. And they consecrated his son and were in charge and have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. David again gathered all the chosen men <laughs> all the vowels. It's got all the vowels. <laughs> you you read you, yep, you sure do. Um you, <laughs> you read all these old testament names and you're like, they just threw a bunch of vowels together. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, <laughs> the ark was supposed to be carried on the, what, what did you say again? By the poles instead of the, the cart. Um, well, the, the main part about the ark is that you don't touch it. 
<laughs> that's, the, that's the central piece of it. So it's supposed to be carried by certain individuals, uh, by the poles, but apparently there were also permissions to, we don't have those individuals, so we're going to put it on a cart as long as it's not touched. Uh, we're all gay. Uzzah's going to find out the hard way when they bring it back to Jerusalem that you don't touch the ark. And so it starts to fall. He reaches out to touch it, and he gets zapped. Um, now, the ark, the important part about the ark, though, is it stays in Abinadab's house. It seems separate from the tabernacle. And to be honest, we lose track of, of all of this in the, de- in the details here in the, in the text. It really doesn't make mention a, a ton of where the tabernacle goes in between all of this happening. And when we see David pick up the ark at Abinadab's house, take it back to Jerusalem and establish the tabernacle there on the threshing floor in Jerusalem, which is essentially where the, the Temple Mount is today. And so we don't, we kind of lose track of it, but, uh, but you have to remember that they're in separate locations and you've got the Ark of the Covenant over there at some random guy's house. You have here in, for whatever reason, in Nob, there is the tabernacle set up and I didn't include this as a singular verse, but it's part of a passage on the back of your verse packet in 1 Samuel twenty-two nineteen. So it's the, uh, if you look at 22, 1 to, uh, 22, 11 to 19, it's the very last verse there. It says, and Nob, the city of the priests. So we know that at some point, by virtue of this verse right here, tells us Nob at some point became the, the city of the priests. Why? Your guess is as good as mine, but it did. Um, so the point is, the two are separated. The tabernacle is set up. David apparently knows this and might know that if anybody's going to have provisions uh, of clothing, of food, of, and it turns out weaponry, it's going to be the priest. And so apparently that's why, that, that might be why he goes there uh, to get it. Now, he asks for the bread of the presence. Uh, that's skipped on me. Hang on. I'm getting there. You're trying to listen too quick. All right. No, I was right. Hang on. Before I do that, let me show you a map. That's, that's why I'm a doofus. Okay. Um, so just let's get our geography just for a second. Shiloh is up here a little bit north. I couldn't squeeze it all in on the same map. So it's probably up here on about this ceiling tile uh, is about where Shiloh actually is. Um, and then Saul is here at Ramah. That's where we're going to see him later on in this passage. We don't really get much of his story until later, but he's here at Ramah. Um, uh, David escapes from there. Uh, sorry, no, I, I made the mistake. Saul is at Gibeah. David escapes from Gibeah and goes to the land of Nob, here where the temple is, and eventually he's going to make his way over in this direction. So not very far from Jerusalem. We're talking less than five miles outside of the, the city limits of Jerusalem is where, um, is where David finds the, the tabernacle. And he eats this showbread, or this what is also referred to as the bread of presence. And uh, the important thing to know about the bread of presence, if you can imagine the temple set up, you have the inner sort of sanctuary, if you will, where the Ark of the Covenant would originally sit, which is inside of a, a, a room that only the high priest can go in. And then just outside of that, still inside the tent, is the, uh, the, uh, the holy of, or the most holy place. Uh, it's where priests would go and tend to everything that's in there. So you're going to find the lampstand. 
You're going to find the table with the showbread in there. You're going to find some temple furniture in there. And then outside would be the courtyard where people would bring their sacrifices and things like that, where other people, commoner, more commoners, could, uh, could go and interact with the priests and things like that. Well, there's this table of the showbread that's supposed to be set up, and the priests are supposed to tend to it, and every week replace it with hot bread. Now, you'll find in some pagan cultures that there's often, you find this even in Buddhism today, where um, they will set before their god the food, and the idea is to keep the god from getting uh, hungry, right? Is to feed, feed the god. Um, that is not what the showbread is for, okay? The showbread does a couple of things. First, it's a reminder of the people and their covenant to God. So the people are responsible through the priest to bring the bread weekly and put it there. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, much like the offerings were. It's, an, it's another kind of offering that they're setting before the Lord. This doesn't appease the Lord's appetite in any way. He's not getting fulfilled and hunger. That's, that's really not what this is for. The other thing, not only a reminder of their covenant to the Lord as in their bringing, by bringing their offering to the Lord, it's also for Aaron and the priesthood to eat. So it's part of the food. Like This is the reason why the sacrifices come in uh, are part of the reason why the sacrifices come in. They're, they're given to the Lord and they're sacrificed to the Lord, but it's also the Lord's way of feeding the priests who are taking care. They have no uh, allotment. Remember, the priests don't uh, have a portion of the land. They can't really raise sheep or goats or anything like this. They don't have these kinds of portions. They can't grow food and crops. They take what people give to them. That's all they have to live on. And so when they bring it to the temple, that's part of what they're, they're going to do. They're going to make um, uh, the showbread out of it. Later on, we'll see that this becomes a temple tax. The people have to pay a temple tax. A few chapters further in Matthew, we'll get into where Jesus is questioned about the temple tax. Do we have to pay the temple tax or not? And um, that's part of what that temple tax goes to, is buying the flour so the priest can cook some of the showbread and put that and basically furnish the, the tabernacle, or in, in their case, the temple, um, and put the, the bread of presence there. But the point is that, that that bread is designed for Aaron and the priesthood. Somebody read there Exodus 25, 23, and 30. And then 30. Go ahead. And then Leviticus 24, 5 to 9. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each uh, loaf. And you shall set them in two piles. Six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a, perpet a perpetual due. So, You've got these laws that say that govern the, the bread of presence or the showbread. Um, 
and they're very strict. Only Aaron and his sons, the priests, can eat of the bread of presence. Why is it that the priest sees, okay, sees it as okay to give to David the showbread? Why? Any idea? Yeah, because he's, the, he's a neighbor in need. And there's one law that really kind of trumps the others. Shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Here's a guy who's starving. Um, the other part of this that's, that's really important is who David is in nature. Um, he's not just some ordinary guy walking up to the, the temple or the tabernacle and asking for bread. He certainly knows that he is at least the commander of the, of the king's armies, at the very least. Typically, the commander of the king's armies, and, and it's unclear in the text how much people know and how much they're growing to know. We're going to see, by the time we get to the end of tonight, we're going to see uh, David's whole family and a lot of other people are, are picking up on something happening. Um, and so we're not quite sure what Ahimelech knows in terms of David's kingship or not. But we at least know that here's a guy of really high rank. And most commonly, that, that kind of rank is reserved for the king's son. Hence, Jonathan has that rank before David. So there's some indication that, Saul, that David has at least a high rank and may be next in line to the throne. At, at least there's at least good reason to believe that. And so... Uh, this is not some ordinary individual, but it seems as though what's governing Ahimelech's choice is here's one of Saul's high-ranking officials, and he's starving, and he's you know on the verge of death, so to speak, uh, and I have the power to feed him. I'm going to. I'm going to give him food. And it seems as though the Lord is perfectly okay with that, to show love to your neighbor who's in need of food which Jesus make, is going to make a similar argument when he gets into the New Testament and he plucks a head of grain, his disciples pluck a head of grain on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees go, you can't do that on the Sabbath day, that's harvesting. And he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the saying he applies then to David. Do you remember David when he walked in there and got the showbread? He seems to say the same thing about that, that the tabernacle was made for man, not man for the tabernacle. And David is allowed in that case because he's on the verge of death. He's starving. And Ahimelech makes a decision to give him food. Well, no, he doesn't. And you're going to find out in, in a, a little bit that Ahimelech does not know, did not know that that was, David, that that was the case with David. Um, so, at, at, which is the next point. At Hob, at Nob, Ahimelech knew nothing of David's estrangement with Saul. Uh, so he provided the only nourishment that he had, which was the showbread uh, in the tabernacle. Now, I want to give you a look at the showbread. If, if this, is a, this is a Google image, all right? When, I, when you Google image showbread, it turns out there's a band named showbread. Did you know that? I didn't. There's a band named everything. So uh, here's the showbread stacked on top of each other on top of the uh, table of acacia wood coated in gold. Um, 
<clears throat> All right. Now, not only does he give him the showbread, he also has something else inside. What does he have? A sword. And he tells da- David, says, you got any, uh, just, you know, I don't know. I'm asking for a friend. You got any, you got any weapons around here anywhere? Uh, you wouldn't happen to have any laying down, would you? He said, no, we don't have anything. We just, uh, we have Goliath's sword, the one, you know, the guy you killed. Yeah, I, we got, I got his sword in here. And David's like, that's actually the best sword. <laughs> so, yeah, go get me that. Uh, so David stumbles upon basically an Uzi uh, in this day. <laughs> and David's got the, uh, the fully automatic weapon, Goliath's sword, and he's like, that's awesome. So he's just kind of uh, stumbled into this. Now, um, there's somebody watching all of this, which is, it turns out, is going to turn out is no bueno. Um, there is this guy named Doeg the Edomite. Uh, if there's a moral to this, these two chapters, it's don't be a Doeg, all right? Um, don't be a Doeg. Doeg the Edomite is here watching this whole scene. Uh, look at uh, 1 Samuel 21, verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, th- this is just a byline mention in the story, all right? It, d- it doesn't say any more about Doeg right now. It just, just mentions that. You just need to know, for future reference, that Doeg was there, and he's observing this, and he's watching all of this happen. David, we're going to find out, sees Doeg watching this whole thing. And he thinks something about it, but he's so hungry, he just kind of sweeps it under the rug and goes ahead and deals with Ahimelech, gets the bread, and gets the sword, and goes on his way. All right, but not paying really much attention. Again, in some sort of naivete, doesn't pay really much attention to this guy who is chief of Saul's herdsmen. If you're chief of the king's herdsmen, where do your loyalties typically lie? If the king is paying your salary, if you take Caesar's money, you're typically loyal to Caesar. All right? And so here is Doeg over here who's taking the king's money, who's watching over his sheep and things like this, and um, he, is, he is observing all of this. Now, in another step of, that kind of shows David is just maybe a little bit naive, David makes his way to Gath. You know Gath? Where's Gath? What is Gath? What is it? It's a Philistine city. Just any Philistine city? Are there notable Philistines from Gath? There's a, there's a bunch of people called, that are giants that are from do we know of someone in prominence in this story so far that has come from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. Okay, David goes to Gath to seek asylum. All right, he's, he's, now we're going to see why here in a second, why I think uh, he, he's going to uh, Gath. It's kind of a mystery in the text as to why he chooses Gath uh, to go there, but you have to understand, David has Goliath's sword strapped to his back, walking into Gath. I don't know, you might see a Jew coming with a giant 
Philistine sword on his back. <laughs> you might think, uh, what? But it seems that David doesn't fully appreciate how much his reputation has spread in both the killing of Goliath. Remember, right after that, Saul requires him to kill a whole slew of Philistines to marry his daughter. So he kills 200 of them. Then he goes on a number of campaigns that's just very given us to us in summary. He goes on a bunch of campaigns and wins them all. We don't know who all and where all he went, but probably killed a lot of Philistines because people are singing songs. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, it may be that David just doesn't think that news has really spread into every Philistine city of what his escapades have, have done. But, so he just walks into Gath, seeking asylum there. And it seems as though they put him under arrest. Now, it doesn't, it, it, when you first read the text, you're probably not going to see them as arresting him, but we're going to look at a couple different things that I think that will prove to you that he is, in fact, under arrest here. Uh, look at, what's the verse? 21, 10 to 15. Somebody read that out loud. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went, from, went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another hymns and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he charged changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his fiddle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Why lack mad men? Um, so one clue that they actually arrest David is there in verse 13. He pretends to be insane. Uh, it just gives the one little mention, in their hands. All right, then he puts marks on the doors of the gate and lets his spittle run down his beard, probably in jail, we're assuming, that that's where, that that's where they put him, in some sort of jail probably inside the king's house. Now, there's, there's some, uh, some other things that are going to go into that in just, just a minute um, that we'll see, but uh, they, they, it seems they put him under arrest. Go with that for now, uh, and then I'll prove it to you beyond the shadow of a doubt in just a moment. But one of, So the question is then, why, did, why does David walk into Gath? He gets there, and he's got presumably Goliath's sword on his back and walks into the city and he gets there and everybody in Gath goes, wait a minute, I know you, that's David, the one that they sing about that says, uh, you know, that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David goes, oh man, <laughs> right? like just that moment of remorse, you're like, I immediately regret this decision and uh, <laughs> decides once they arrest him that I'm just going to act crazy. And let's just hope this works. And so I think what's going on is they put him in the cell and he drools all over himself and starts clawing at things and just acting like he's completely out of his mind. 
And so it does raise the question, though, why would David just walk into Gath? Well, one of the reasons might be just simple geography. Um, so geographic is the word. I'm going to go to the next slide, but just geographic is the word you need to write down. Um, <clears throat> look where David is. This is his hometown of Bethlehem. This is Nob. He moves past Jerusalem, walks past the ridge of mountains. You see this ridge of mountains that's right here? Past this, it gets into a flat territory, just a plain. And the first real territory that he's going to come to that is not Jewish territory is going to be Gath. It's right on the other side of these mountains. And so most likely, it's just the first city that he, that he comes to. Now remember, it was here that he was dying of hunger. He's probably not super full by the time he gets over these mountains and down to the city of Gath. He's probably a little bit thirsty and you know, in need of natural provisions and things like that. So it seems as though maybe just geographically, he's going to take his chances and hope that no one recognizes him and his big sword as he walks into the town. Uh, that turns out to be not so great a decision. Now, I want you to look, uh, we have just a little bit of time, so I want, I want you to look at Psalm 56. I didn't um, put this in the verse list because, um, because it was just, frankly, it was too long. But uh, Psalm 56, and I want you to see this. Um, this is the beauty of, of following David's story as you get these psalms along the way that, uh, that he writes during these times. So the uh, naivete is beginning to wear off of David very quickly, in a hurry, it seems like. Uh, psalm 56, to the choir master, according to the dove on far off, some, probably some song, uh, far off terebinth, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So he's in prison, it, it seems like. And how would you feel if you're in prison all by your lonesome? It says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil, are against me, are, ev are for evil, are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples of O oh God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the God, for God in the light of life. 
I, I don't know exactly what point along the journey of his imprisonment that he's writing this. Perhaps he's writing this a long time after and he's reflecting back on that time, or maybe he's writing it right there in the middle of prison. Maybe he's forming it there in the middle of a Philistine jail as he realizes the gravity of the decision that he's made. I don't know. But it seems as though David is terrified. He has no idea what is going to become of this situation. Isn't it beautiful that he reflects though, yeah. during those times about who God is? Yeah. Still praises him. Yeah. It's the truth, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a lesson for us. Yeah. My favorite line of this whole psalm is, um, put, is in verse 8, right in the middle. Put my tears in your bottle. Uh, we, we hear this refrain over and over, and we see this in, uh, in, at the end in Revelation when John kind of ties a little bow on all of human existence, and he says uh, he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Uh, David seems to have some indication that no tear is going to fall from his eye that God is not aware of and, and has marked down and re- will repay. And so in spite of all this, you can sense in this psalm that David is terrified. And his only recourse is when the Philistines are around to act like a crazy person in the hope that somehow that gets him something. And so he does it. Now, probably, if you are in the prison of the Philistines and you're there in the ha- you're, you're most likely imprisoned in the biggest house that's there, which is going to be the king's house, the expectation of the prisoners then is to be a mercenary for the king. So he, you can picture uh, Achish, the, the king, or a, if you want to pronounce it, Achish, the king, going down into the cells underneath his palace that all the men have said, okay, we've got a whole host of prisoners that we brought to you. Who do you want to make your mercenary, your armed you know, people to fight in your battles and things like that for free, essentially, slave labor. And he's going down the row and he comes to David's cell. And in David's cell is a crazy man with a beard with spit all over it and with a crazy wild look in his eye, claws all over the, all over the uh, cell and no telling what else he's done. Uh, that's not reported in the, in the text. Uh, and he's looking at him like, you think I'm going to take this guy into my army? You think I need another crazy man around here? i got enough of those. Sell crazy somewhere else. We're all filled up here. Uh, so as it turns out, Akish just lets David walk. Now, turn to Psalm 34. Uh, you need to know that Akish a also went by Abimelech. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you were about to ask that question. I know. I, I could sense the question coming. Uh, Abimelech literally means my father was king. So that's probably a title for the Philistine ruler. My father was king. Hey, who is this guy? My father was king. Oh, okay. He's king. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that 
he drove him out and he went away. So David is writing this psalm, it seems very clearly, after Achish or Abimelech has sent him away. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and, he, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of, all, out of them all. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Needless to say, Psalm 34 is a response to Psalm 56, and it's the result of what happens after David cries out to the Lord in desperation. Lord, you got to do something. And it turns out Akish is just really not that interested in David. Now, uh, later we'll see that David is the one that ends up conquering the Philistines. <laughs> so Akish has egg on his face. Pun. No? Okay. Um, <clears throat> That's too cheesy. All right. Um, <laughs> so uh, David, after he's released from the Philistine jail, um, takes up his life as an outlaw, and he moves around from place to place, and he has no uh, visible means of support at whatsoever uh, to, to, you know, to make it on his way, really, at all. He's an outlaw. He's running from Saul constantly. Uh, constantly on the run. As you read through the Psalms, you can hear these things coming out in David's uh, Psalms when he's talking about his, um, the, the sleep that he gets and things like that. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's amazing when he says, Lord, you gave me rest. Uh, can you just imagine, I said it last week, but just imagine being on the run perpetually, not knowing where you were going to lay your head, not knowing when the enemy was going to come up and kill you, and the Lord gives you sleep. Uh, that's something you're incredibly thankful for when you need sleep. Trust me. Um, so look at Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 22, 1 to 5. Uh, somebody read that out loud for me. That's on the back of your first packet there.
out loud, sorry. <laughs> no, don't read it to yourself. Read it out loud. 22, 1 5. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was, was in distress, who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know that till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the day, all the time all the time that David was in, in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Kareth. Uh, okay, so what seems to be happening here is that people are growing in awareness that David is lead, about to lead a movement that will result in a revolution that overthrows Saul, or so they think. It doesn't quite turn out the way they think it's going to, but they are gathering around David and they realize that he's the anointed king, probably because Saul is crazy. <laughs> and people are starting to realize this guy is off his rocker. Now, he has a demon, and, and they probably don't know that. But they do know something is wrong with Saul, and, uh, and David, it seems, is the one that's about to lead a movement. So what happens is that people start to come to him. First of all, David's family comes to him. Then you get all these despicable lowlifes that come to him, all the people that are frustrated, all the people that are tired, all the weary and heavy laden are coming to David to find rest. They're making him their captain. As it turns out, God's judgment will bring Saul and those who exalt themselves low. And it will exalt David and those who, like him, are trusting in Yahweh. If only we knew of someone else like this. Uh, David, it seems, is setting the bar for the Messiah to come, what he will be like. And here in this tiny little passage, you get all the low and weary and tired and heavy laden coming to the Lord, or coming to their king, uh, and, and receiving rest and protection. And we're going to see a priest in just a minute uh, come there as well. Um, so then we come back to Saul. What's Saul doing this whole time? Well, it turns out Saul is resting underneath a tree uh, do, do a, with, with a spear. Uh, and this scene where, uh, where Saul, or where we, we see Saul appear is, I mean, it's right out of a movie, I think. Uh, so somebody read 22, 6 to 10 for me. Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. 
to Ahimelech, the son of Ahithab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So here is Saul in the middle of this pity party telling everybody around him, why is it that you guys are more loyal to David than you are to me? Is David going to give you all of this? Look at what I've given you. I've put you over men. I've given you command over thousands and hundreds of men. And I've given you part of the, we don't have any reference to taxation that Saul does, but there's obviously some taxes that he's taken because he's given a lot of land and he's giving people and he's giving money to some of his commanding officers. And yet, none of it buys their loyalty. None of it. They're taking it and none of it buys their loyalty. He says, you knew about Jonathan. You knew he had more loyalty to David than he did to me. And nobody told me. So Saul's in the middle of throwing this pity party and Doeg the Edomite is seeing his opportunity to take his little place above all of the, uh, the soldiers that are not loyal to Saul and say, I'm loyal to you, Saul. I Don't be a Doeg, okay? Don't be a Doeg. Um, <clears throat> so Doeg says, uh, Saul, I actually happen to know where David went and I would be happy to tell you what happened. He got help from Ahimelech, the priest, and he ran away. He was at Nob, and now he went somewhere else. And so he tells uh, Saul this. And so Saul says, okay, let's call all the priests together. I want you to go get the priests, and I want you to bring them to me. And so he, go gets, he goes and gets Ahimelech, and he goes and gets uh, all of Ahimelech's household, and he tells his commanding officers, kill him. And his commanding officers don't. Can you imagine that scene? Imagine how tense that would be. Let's look at it. Read 22, 11 to 19. Somebody out loud. I'll read it. Okay. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Hear, my lord. Here am I, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all, his, all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the, kings, and the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they, they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the, you can imagine between verses 17 and 18 a really long, awkward pause. <laughs> then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite, don't be a Doeg, turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons 
who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Laid waste to the entire city of of the priests. Just in case those people are part of it, he executed them all. Uh, Has Saul turned his back completely on the Lord? Yes, he has. You, the reader, knows that. Saul somehow does not. And we'll see that next week. When Saul thinks the Lord is with him, has the nerve to think the Lord is with him after he puts to death all the Lord's priests. So although, here's here's the further irony in this David story up to this point, although David has committed absolutely no sin in taking the showbread, we find that out in G- when Jesus says, he didn't commit a sin there, he, he, that, that was his. He takes responsibility for Saul's actions anyway. And what does he do? He protects Abiathar, the only priest that's left. Look at 22, 20 to 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when the Doeg, the Edomite, was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. What is David doing there? He's taking the blame for it. Even though there's no way he could have known. Saul would have killed all the priests for what he did. Stay with me. He tells Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So one of the things that seems like is happening, at least, in the Lord sending David out into the wilderness is maturity. Wearing away at his innocence so that he sees just how evil things are. Yet doing it in such a way that David wants no part of it. And all the while, David gets afraid, he gets worried, he cries out to the Lord, and yet all the while he trusts. After reading Psalm 34, Akish has sent him away. David writes this psalm of deliverance. He he has the confidence to tell Abiathar, with me, you shall be in safekeeping. He knows that the Lord is going to keep him through all this, though he doesn't know how. He knows that it's going to be done. He's the Lord's anointed. So then in the future, when he has opportunity to take Saul out, He doesn't take it. Because the Lord has not appointed David to be Saul's executioner, only his successor. And he's patient enough to wait until the Lord works it all out. Questions, comments? Go ahead, Timothy.
all to get some sort of advantage. The king's graces. Good. Well, it struck me in the in the first psalm when David's in prison, he he refers to God, but he doesn't use his name, which but he uses like one time. And when he's free, he uses Yahweh, 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 just over and over again says his name. And you see, Saul says, "If you inquire of God, you inquire of God," and then he only invokes the Lord's name to murder. Hmm. You know, and it's just this the respect that. David has for the name of the Lord and the utter disregard that Saul has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jennifer? Why does he, I mean, I understand he's trying to protect his parents by taking them to Moab, but <laughs> is this mitzvah different from the mitzvah that Saul is from? And also, isn't he from this town? Mm-mm. From, uh, mir- mir- um, yep, a place. <laughs> Uh, out of the land of Israel. But why would he have assurance that they would actually like care about his um, Good question. Uh, Moab, Edom, Israel uh, all stem from the same genetics. So there's probably some, feels as though some family connection there that they would be able to rest. It seems as though people are beginning to be aware that David is coming next. And we don't get any indication of that like specifically in the text other than the people coming out to him in the cave. But it does seem as though in the story, yeah, there, there is a growing interest in this David character and what he's gonna, about to do. And Saul is kind of slipping the other way. So it's possible the Moabites are aware that David's the next king and out of respect are, are doing that for his parents. Um, you know, we, we get, mostly in the Old Testament, we get snapshots of all the evil and wicked that everybody did because the point of the story is not to show anybody's uh, do-gooding, <laughs> but there obviously was some, you know, commonality between uh, tribes and countries and things like that, too. So that, that may be it. I, I, I don't know anything other than that. Another question? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the showbread definitely is, a, is an offering of provision. Like you're, you're giving because the Lord has given to you, and there's, anytime bread comes along, there's exodus overtones, there's all kinds of, you know, wilderness wandering overtones and things like that that are, that are coming into bread anytime the Lord is, is providing. And, and of course, they're, because they're required to continually put it before the Lord, it is a trust that he's going to provide the kind of provision that, he need, that they need in order to do that. Um, I don't know specifically in the Lord's Prayer if he's making any kind of connections there to the showbread or if they would have even thought of that as much as it was they just live hand to mouth and every day they're, in, they're requiring the Lord to provide their bread. I don't, I'm not sure if there would be any temple connection there. Potentially there could be. I just, I'm just unaware of it. So quickly, and then we've got to go.
In the country? Yeah. <laughs> Tons. People are totally divided about who do you follow. Do you follow David or do you follow the king? I mean, you've got people coming out to David in the caves, David's own family, coming out to David in the caves for his family who's had benefits from Saul, we think anyway, removing of taxes. For them to come out to David in the caves is a, uh, an act of treason against the king. But it's basically saying it's not treason. It's following the true king, who is David. So, yeah, this is, this is drawing a sharp line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, James, quickly, and then we got to go. Absolutely. People never change. It's the same. Same. Speaking of getting shot, Tom's going to shoot me if I don't pray and get you out of here. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in the Word, and, and I pray that it's fruitful in our hearts that we are confident of your uh, provision for us and our trust, our ultimate trust in you, knowing that the way we trust in you, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what it is. It's going to be in the, in the temporal sense. We don't know if the sickness is going to take us. We don't know if some of those things are, are, going to, are going to actually have their day. But we do know that we can trust you and that none of those things have ultimate say. That all of it is uh, going to fall into your hand. And ultimately, we have salvation secured by Christ and Christ alone. And that we are assured of uh, the moment we close our eyes in death, we open it in life. And so we are grateful for that and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.